0: Would you please take your Bibles and open to John chapter 5. We began this chapter last week with an amazing and a powerful passage, Jesus healing this man who had been paralyzed for some 38 years. And we spent our time last week looking at who it was that Jesus healed and how it was that he healed. But time wouldn't allow us to explore the fact that Jesus did the healing on the sabbath and how that really ruffled the feathers of the religious establishment nor did we have time to adequately address jesus follow-up command to the man that he healed when he found him in the temple he said that he needed to stop sinning and so those are the two items of unfinished business for us this morning I ask you to stand if you're able for the reading of God's Word. We'll go just a few verses further into the passage this week. Beginning in verse 9, John chapter 5. These are the very words of God. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My Father is working until now, and I am working. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. And may God bless, richly bless, the reading, the preaching, of his inspired, inerrant, infallible, and authoritative word. Let's pray together. Father, we come in this moment like we do each week, admitting our need, confessing our dependence on you. Uh, Father, telling you how grateful we are to, to have your word, That you and your providence preserved it down through the centuries. Father, we need your help. We need Holy Spirit's assistance if we're to understand it rightly. If we're to see Jesus clearly. to Understand who he is. What he has done. What he continues to do. What he offers to us. What he expects of us. Would you make these things clear and plain for us this morning? Would you change us by what we see in your word? More than intellectually, at a deep, deep level, would you continue to turn our hearts toward you that we might love you and be devoted to you all of our days? We ask in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Please be seated. I got asked a couple of questions after last week's sermon. I'm always happy to get questions. It means people are paying attention. They're, they're thinking, they're processing. So I got asked some questions, and then I had a few questions of my own this week from the part of the passage that we're in now. And I began to see kind of a, a pattern or a recurring theme in, in these questions, the ones that I was asked, the ones that I had on my own. And here's the theme. The first question was a good question, worthy of pondering, considering, answering. But each of the questions I had seemed to lead to an even better question, a question that drove down deeper, a question that really got to the heart of the matter, and so that 's what i 've done with the outline for you i 've give, given you three pairs of questions. The first half of each pair is the initial good question, one worthy of considering, and then the second half of each pair is what I think is is a better question what 's going to really drive down to the to the heart of the matter at hand so let 's look at this first pair of questions, the one posed to me actually. Why did Jesus only heal one? If you remember from last week, there was a multitude of invalids at that pool that day. But Jesus singled out one and left all the others unhealed. And so that was the question. Why did he heal only one? But maybe the better question to ask is why did he heal any? Why did he heal even the one? I think that's the better question to ask on a couple of different levels. One is that it is easy for us to slip into the trap of thinking that something's not fair. Kids are especially prone to this. That's not fair. Why did he get three cookies and I only got two? That's not fair. Don't I deserve to get as many cookies as he did? One man gets a healing, the others don't. Don't they deserve to get a healing too? Well, actually, none of them deserves a healing. If Jesus in his grace and mercy decides to heal one, that's his sovereign prerogative. And it says so explicitly in a verse just beyond today's passage. I'll give you a sneak peek of, of next week. Verse 21 of chapter 5. As we get a little bit deeper. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. Now that might make us a little uncomfortable, but there it is and we have to deal with it. His sovereign prerogative. If no one deserves to be healed, if no one deserves to be singled out by Jesus, then why would he heal any? Why would he do any miracles? Why would he do any signs or wonders? We've already seen in John's Gospel the purpose of the signs, the purpose of the healings, including this one, is to get people's eyes on Jesus. And help them understand Jesus' identity. He heals so that people might know who he is. He heals so that all eyes might be fixed on him. And so here's my theory of how a single healing, instead of healing the whole kit and caboodle that day, might have even been Advantageous. It was definitely his design. Is that with the one healing, every single eye in that place is immediately fixed on him? Do you remember back in chapter 3 when Jesus was having his conversation with Nicodemus? He pulls up this relatively obscure Old Testament reference about the bronze serpent God's people had been grumbling and complaining and so he sent poisonous snakes to bite and kill the complainers and the grumblers and Moses intercedes on the people's behalf and he says oh Lord please help and so God says okay make a bronze snake and lift it up on a pole strange instructions right? Strange. It's very strange. What was the point of that? So that when people turned their gaze onto the bronze serpent, lifted up on the pole, they were healed. The venom was no longer fatal. Jesus heals any. In this case, Jesus heals one that the gaze of many might be fixed on him so that when he's lifted up on the cross to die the death of a sinner in the place of real sinners like me and you that we might have life. That we might receive our ultimate healing. Right? Some folks in this life get physical healings, not all. But the ultimate goal and design is that we get the spiritual healing, the one that lasts for eternity. That's the point. Physical healings, when they happen, are just a means to an end. Second pair of questions. How can we keep from breaking the Sabbath? See the passage starts verse nine. The wrench in this whole thing is that Jesus did this amazing healing, but he did it on the Sabbath, and so immediately the Sabbath police pounce on this man when he obeys Jesus' command. He rises and he takes up his bed, which is really just like rolling up a little straw mat, and he he walks away. This man, they say, is guilty for taking the next logical steps, literally, after having been healed. And Jesus is guilty, in their minds, for doing the healing in the first place. See, Sabbath observance was a super big deal. Duh, it's one of the Ten Commandments, right? And the religious leaders of that day understood how important it was, and so they created 39 additional rules to go along with it. To further spell out what breaking the Sabbath looked like. If you take more than X number of steps from your house on the Sabbath, you have broken the Sabbath. If you carry something from your home to another place, you have broken the Sabbath. If you carry an empty bed, now it's okay to carry a bed with someone on it. Right? But if you carry an empty bed on the Sabbath, you have broken the Sabbath. On and on. Spelled out with so much specific detail. And, and y'all, this is not, read the Gospels, this is not the only time that Jesus gets in trouble regarding the Sabbath. He seems to be fond, for some reason, of stirring this particular pot. And it, it incites the religious leaders to become obsessed With not only persecuting him, but plotting and planning his murder. Because you see, he admits in verse 17, Yes, I'm working. Look at me, I'm working on the Sabbath. My father's working on the Sabbath, and that's why I am. See, God may have stopped his creative work after six days, but his sustaining work, that's ongoing. (laughs) Who keeps everything in the universe in its place, doing its thing? Who keeps the earth from hurtling out of its orbit, flinging away from the sun where we all freeze in a matter of moments? Who does that? It doesn't just happen on its own. Daddy's doing it. And so am I, Jesus says. And so you see there in verse 18, when you combine his total disrespect for the Sabbath along with his blasphemy of Claiming equality with God, well, it's just a recipe for disaster. But you see, that's just the good question, right? Are you breaking the Sabbath? The better question is, are you keeping the Sabbath? See, the command about the Sabbath is a positive command. It's not just something to avoid. It's something to actively engage in and participate in. Exodus 20, verse 8, where the command is given, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. See, it's not just simply a bunch of stuff that you cease doing. It's not a call to idleness. It's a call to a different type of busyness, namely remembering who God is, what he's done. As I was thinking about it, I'm thinking, right, to keep the Sabbath is, is to carefully carve out time and protect time. Because, man, there's a bunch of things vying for our time. Carve out time and protect time to celebrate God being God. To, to bask in his goodness and his worth. That's keeping the Sabbath. Sabbath. Those are kind of my words that I kind of came up with. Calvin, of course, says it a lot better. He says, Why does the law enjoin men to abstain from their own works, but in order to keep all their senses free and occupied for considering the works of God? See, the Sabbath is not just about taking a nap, right? It's not merely about not making widgets on a particular day because you'd normally make widgets on the other days and I'm not going to make widgets today. I'm going to take a nap. All right, I kept the Sabbath. No, that, that's not it. See, the religious leaders thought themselves experts at not breaking the Sabbath. But did they have any clue how bad they were at keeping the Sabbath? I mean, here stands before them an amazing display of God's power and authority. 38 years the man was paralyzed. And at Jesus' words, he gets up and walks. And the religious leaders don't even mention it. I mean, they could have at least given him props for what he did before they Busted him on the Sabbath thing. They could have said, oh, Jesus, that is amazing what you just did. But we are going to need you to wait 24 hours next time. Right? Now, they can't even do that. Right? They they hear of this amazing healing, and they hear that one of their precious 39 rules has been violated, and they only give a rip about one. They were blind to his goodness and his power. And as such, they failed to keep the Sabbath. Now, by and large, here at Trinity, um, we're not a group that seems to me obsessed with all of the don'ts about the Sabbath, right? But do we focus enough on the positive side of Sabbath-keeping? carving out time, protecting time to celebrate God being God, to to bask in his goodness and worth. I, I think that's a question that we ought to consider. Third pair of questions this morning. They take us back to this interesting and somewhat problematic command that Jesus gives to this man that he's healed. Jesus heals him, he slips away. There's a crowd, and so he's, he's the master at kind of slipping away and not getting caught. So he heals him, he slips away, but he later purposefully goes back, finds him in the temple, and verse 14 says, See, you're well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. And so now we've got questions, right? Good questions about the cause of this man's disability. Was, are we to read this and understand that he was paralyzed for 38 years because of sin? It's easy to read that verse and at least ask that question, if not come to that conclusion. There, there seems to be a, a link here. And we'd be in good company if we're asking that question and drawing that conclusion, because especially in that day and time, folks were quick to ask that question, to connect those dots, and very often come to the immediate conclusion that, oh yeah, sin is very much, very often, if not always, the cause of sickness, disability, death. Remember Job's friends, right? Use that term loosely, right? They see all that has befallen Job. Oh man, you ain't been living right, right? That's their immediate conclusion. Later in this gospel, chapter 9, when they encounter the man who was born blind, the disciples ask Jesus a question. Was it this man's sin, or was it his parents' sin? They don't even ask if it was sin. They've already decided in their minds, oh, this is because of sin. Just was it this man's, or was it his parents'? And we've got... examples both ways in scripture. We've got some very clear examples where sickness and disability and death are the direct result of sin. We've got plenty of examples where they're not. And on one level we need to admit and acknowledge that every sin and every sickness and disability and death is in one way the result of sin, the result of Adam and Eve's sin and rebellion in the garden that that plunged the world uh, into a world where those things are not the exception anymore, they are the norm. So at least on one level. So uh, lots of of good possibilities for us to consider here. Yes, it's a good question about the cause of this man's disability. Uh, Another good question would be, uh, what could be worse than 38 years of paralysis? Jesus says, sin no more lest something worse happen to you. And, and so we think that that's pointing toward, <clears throat> that'd be the judgment, right? That, that'd that be a, an eternal consequence, something worse than 38 years of paralysis. So that's a good question, a couple of good questions. But here's the thing. The cause of the man's disability is not as good of a question as What's the result of his healing? That's the better question to consider. That's what Jesus' command ought to have us thinking about, not why he was disabled, but now that he's healed, now what? What should be the result of his healing? Holiness. This man got singled out. Remember, there was a multitude that day. Jesus singles him out, chooses him, if you'll allow me to use that language, brings his supernatural power to bear on his life, and then says, stop sinning. It's a bit uncomfortable for us any time we talk about Jesus singling someone out right the the, that's not fair question pops up in the back of our minds It, it makes us uncomfortable that Jesus singles this one man out of the many why why does he do that it's very similar to what he does in salvation why does he single any out for salvation why did he single me out why why you Why would he open my eyes and not another? Why would he give me a new heart and grant me faith to believe and not someone else? That's a a very humbling question to consider. But it has the potential to leave us sort of spinning our wheels. Maybe even wasting our time a bit, if that's all we ever do is just stay in that pondering and wondering about, mm, well, why me? Because in, in a real sense, that's considering something that doesn't have an answer other than, well, it's because God was pleased to do it. Right? Back, back to the, why did he heal only one? Because he gave his healing to whom he will. Right? It was his sovereign prerogative. It's what he did. So spending too much time thinking about that and dwelling on that without also considering the result, well, that could be a waste of time, I think, and and not what God intended. Uh, This made me really think about Romans 8 because Romans 8 mentions some of those uncomfortable words about singling out. Chosen called, predestined, foreknowledge, these types of things. Words that get fixated on and focused on. But I really want you to see how results-focused it is and to what end the singling out occurs. Look at Romans twenty-eight, uh, eight twenty-eight, which everybody knows, and lesser-known 29, which comes right after it. Right? And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good right God's working good okay for those who are called according to his purpose for those whom he foreknew he also predestined right so those are all the words that we get fixated on and we forget to look at the reason that he's doing all of that is that all of those folks might be conformed to the image of his son You see, the result of being singled out by Jesus is to be made like Jesus, to be conformed to him. Jesus' command to this man, sin no more, has much more to do with the result of his healing than the cause for his disability. This man's encounter with Jesus will ultimately lead to his holiness any and all of our encounters with Jesus. When He shows up in power and gives us the healing that we so desperately need, and again, I'm not talking about a physical healing. If that happens, great. If it doesn't happen, focus on the thing that we have to have happen for all of eternity. When He reaches down, and exerts his healing power on our sinful and rebellious hearts, he is changing us forever. He is turning our hearts to him, whereby we will forever have affection for him and be devoted to him. That's by design. He heals us, and that healing turns our hearts toward Him. Calvin again here says it better. It is the universal design both of our redemption and all the gifts of God to keep us entirely devoted to Him. How could we not be? How could we not be? See, this command in verse 14 isn't as much of a disconnect as as we might initially think. It doesn't come out of left field. It should be the obvious result of having encountered Jesus, of having been healed by Him, that we would love Him forever and would seek to live like Him and for Him. That is always God's design. I've healed you Now go live like somebody who's encountered the mighty power of God. And it's always in that order. Now pay attention to this. Because the world, 90% of them, they reverse the order. In their understanding of Christianity, this order is reversed in their minds. The obedience always always flows out from having already received grace the obedience is never a means to try to get grace see Jesus doesn't start with obedience with this guy he doesn't show up at the pool that day and say stop sinning and if you promise that you'll stop sinning well then I'm going to heal you and let you walk again that no it's never in that order The kids are studying the Ten Commandments in Sunday school right now. God didn't give the Ten Commandments while they were still enslaved in Egypt. He doesn't say, obey, and I'll rescue you from slavery. No, the rescue comes first. The rescue always comes first. And then before he does give the Ten Commandments, he says, now remember... I'm the Lord your God who rescued you, who redeemed you, who got you out of the land of Egypt, got you out of slavery, and now here's how rescued people live. Here's what that looks like. It's always that order. It was for that man at the pool at Bethesda that day. It is for us now. And so my prayer for us this morning as I hope that we've tied up these two loose ends a little bit, is that we will be a people who positively keep the Sabbath, carve out and protect time to remember and to celebrate God being God, and that we'd be a kind of people who live like we've been healed and rescued. Let's pray. Oh, Father our great healer. Would you help us even on this Sabbath day to keep it? We're, we're in your house. We're off to potentially a good start. But even though our bodies are physically present, our hearts might still be far from you. Our hearts might still be focused on other things. May we celebrate you today, Father. May you remind us in the Sabbath day of our rescue, of our healing, of our redemption. And would you be at work in our hearts, our minds, and our wills so that we might be a people who live like we've been healed, who live like we've been rescued And in doing so, would you make those around us hungry for their rescue, hungry for their own redemption, hungry for their own healing. God, would you grant this by your grace for your glory? We ask in Christ's name. Amen. Please stand and let's sing.